so it's generally pretty wise to stay in your lane. And yet, um, full disclosure, my lane is not photography, but I, I really love it. And it always interests me to see, especially what people can do with lenses and cameras. One thing that fascinates me is how different a scene can look when the focus changes. So you can focus in on a certain person or object and that, that becomes crisp and like, you can see detail and then everything else gets pushed back to the background and sometimes if there are two different things you focus on, it could even look like two different scenes even though it's the same scene. So we've been clear each week as we've been going through the book of Genesis, and there are some that are new to our church and even new to this series. But we've been going through the book of Genesis the last few weeks, and I mentioned the whole deal of focus because our focus has been particularly on who God is, on knowing God. So there are a lot of other things in Genesis that you could focus. You could shift the focus and focus on certain themes and topics, and all that would be valuable. And yet we are choosing to put our focus on Christ, on God, and, and actually even if that pushes a few other things to the background, our focus has been there. We're looking at who he is, what he says, what he does, and so we're going to continue that focus. And I really, uh, Deb Fry is going to come and read several verses here in Genesis chapter 2, so if you have your Bible, could you take it and turn there? Uh, Genesis 2, she'll begin reading in verse 1, and listen again, turn your focus on, okay, where Where is God and what is he doing in this passage? So, Deb, come read for us this morning. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Cush. And the land of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. I'm grateful for Deborah reading, giving us the wide scope. 
We're just going to walk through that passage. The first thing that you see even as Genesis 2 begins is that God finishes what he begins. Look at verse 1 again. We've had the wide scope. Now we could kind of zero in. Notice all the references here to God finishing. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It is telling us again and again and again that God finishes what he begins. If you've been with us through the previous six days of creation that we've covered over the last couple of weeks, there's a chapter division as you get into chapter two. In some ways, it's uh, unfortunate in that we have the seventh day, and so the, the story still continues. But I think it's also helpful that there is a break because day number seven is very different. There is no, and God said, and God said, and God said, like there is with all the other days of creation. And on this day, God doesn't work. God's work says he is finished. In the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1-2 the, the world, the heavens and the earth are described as formless and empty. By the end of chapter one into chapter two, that isn't the description. God has shaped the world. God has filled the world. God has shaped and filled the world in such a way where it'll continue to be shaped and continue to be filled. And now he's finished. You come to the seventh day and many of you in Scripture, you're familiar with seventh day is the Sabbath. The word Sabbath isn't used, and we actually don't have a full-scale teaching on the Sabbath, although it does begin here, and even other places in Scripture are going to point back to this particular day. For other passages in Scripture, you could go to, again, you could trace those themes out of Sabbath. But what we know is on this day, on the seventh day, it does tell us God rested, and it doesn't say he rested because he was tired or because he was weary. It tells us he rested because he was finished. It was done. It tells us also on this day, unlike the previous six days, it says God blessed the seventh day. God blessed it. And anytime you read in verse three there, any, anytime you read of God blessing something, especially in Genesis, certainly it's God's favor is on it. So God, God gives good things there, but it's more than that. It's when God blesses something, it gives it capacity to like fulfill its intention. So whatever purpose, it's going to accomplish that. So when God blesses the Sabbath, it gives it the potential to give us rest and rejuvenation and refreshment. We know we're not self-sufficient. God blessed the Sabbath, blessed the seventh day. It also says that God took this day and he made it holy. He hallowed this day so ingrained in the life of Israel, even ingrained in the life of Jesus. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll read accounts of Jesus, and over and over again, you're going to come up with him doing things on the Sabbath or teaching about the Sabbath. God set this day apart, knowing the need for weekly rest and weekly worship. The resting even, again, we could open up, we could start walking down the trail of rest and 
We certainly would see this regularly referred to in Scripture. You get to Hebrews and it says there remains a rest and then you get to Revelation and finally God's people are at rest. There's a rest that we long for, a rest where we're not there yet. But I want you to not miss the fact at the beginning of Genesis, here in chapter 2, it is reminding us once again that God finishes what he begins. So much so that in Hebrews Jesus is described as the author or the founder of our faith, but he's also the the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. God finishes what he begins. Ephesians is going to remind us that we are sealed. If we are in Christ, we are sealed till the day we're redeemed because God finishes what he begins. Philippians says that God started a good work in you. He will be faithful to complete it. And he's the only one who can keep us from falling because he finishes what he begins. He will see us across the finish line. So let's like, let that sink in, that God, God begins things, but he knows how to bring them to completion. He knows how to finish. So many things we could elaborate on in those first three verses, but I, I do want us to keep reading. So look at verse four there. And verse four seems like a, a pretty ordinary verse. It doesn't seem like there's a, a ton of things, new information being shared, but But there's some things that are highlighted in this verse that I want you to pay attention to. So it starts off, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When you read, these are the generations of, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, and some of you have, some of you have read through Genesis lots of times, you'll notice that wording, these are the generations, comes up 10 distinct times. So there's some pattern here that we're supposed to, if we're going to understand Genesis, we're supposed to, we, we've got to understand exactly what's being said by that. Generally, it's these are the generations of Adam, these are the generations of Noah, these are the generations of Isaac, these are the generations of Jacob. Only here is it not a person, but it's the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. And notice the shift there at the end of this verse, where it says, in the day that the Lord God made, and then instead of heaven's earth, heaven's earth, which we've read heaven's first, it's like a subtle shift, and now it's the earth. It's as if God's saying, let's, let's talk about this story of the earth and who inhabits the earth. Let's look at their story. So Genesis 2 reads very different than Genesis 1. Some analogies that have been helpful to me is almost like, so you have a tablet or even, even your phone and you pinch and you zoom out where you can see something in a little bit more detail. It seems like that's happening in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 gives us this big sweep of sun, moon, and stars, and now we get even a zeroed-in look at what's going on with humans on this earth. Or, or another way we could think of it is it's almost as if frame by frame things are slowing down. It's like going in slow motion. If Genesis 1 took us through the first six days really quickly, Now we're slowing down, and we're looking at it detail by detail, frame by frame. Not a small detail in this. And and maybe you picked up on it, the name of God. There's an addition when you come to chapter 2 and verse 4. So the first few verses of Genesis read, God created. God Elohim, the sovereign creator. And now we read, not just God, but now it's the Lord God. Remainder of Genesis 2, you read the Lord God. What's going on? Well, certainly there's God, the sovereign creator. He is God. But then the name of the Lord, the, we, we sometimes pronounce it like Yahweh or Jehovah. 
It's the covenant name that God gave to Abraham and Abraham's family. And remember, in Abraham, all the earth would be blessed. So all peoples get to know God through this covenant name of the Lord. I am who I am, God told Moses. So it's not just the one who created all this, but it's also the one, yes, it's the Lord God. It's not just the one who created it all, but it's the one also who has made a covenant he's committed to his people. And we see all that in verse 4. It's signaling important things to us. So verse 5, let's keep reading. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. So there's some different factors here. There's no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And it's telling us, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So what are we supposed to hear from this passage in, in Genesis? It is signaling to us uh, atmospheric differences where no no plant life is fully developed, no shrub, no bush, no small plant. There's no rain, something comes up like irrigating the land. And no human cultivation just yet. That's going to come later on in this chapter. But I actually want your attention to be drawn to something else. And in some ways it's hard to miss it, although we, we could miss it. When you read words like field and land and ground and dust, and you read them several times over, like you do in Genesis 2, there's something being communicated here. Some of what we're supposed to see when we read this is that God takes this dust and earth and ground and he forms and breathes life into humans. God forms and breathes life into humans. Genesis 1. God gives us nouns to tell us of his connection to us. What I mean nouns, he... He tells us we're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. But when you come over to Genesis 2, you don't just have those nouns. Now you have verbs as well. Not only are we made in God's image and God's likeness, but now it says God formed man out of the dust. God breathed life into them. Very clear picture that God forms. Like he's personally invested here. The word is actually regularly used, this idea of forming is actually regularly used of pottery. So a potter forms things. God starts with ground, dust, earth. If we watch like superhero movies, there's always this fictional, fantastical substance that somehow gives them this magical superpower. And this story says, no, no, no. It's just earth, just dust. And we're tempted to be unimpressed. We say even things when we're going to memorial services, funeral services, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's a recognition like, of exactly what, what are we made of, that we miss something in the English. Normally, I don't camp out in Hebrew words or Greek words in the original languages, but it is important for me that you see exactly how this works. So when the word ground comes up several times in, in the book of Genesis, especially in chapter 2 here. The word is Adamah. 
And God takes the substance, the dirt, and out of that, like literally embedded in that is Adam. That's man, that's mankind. It's the Hebrew words. Do you, you notice what it is telling us? It's taking from this dirt, God makes a human. You know, kids form, even a kid forms and creates. So my house has been much like, if, you've, if you have family with lots of kids, my house at times, the table would be filled with art projects and there's scissors and there's paint and there's paper and there's pencils and there all, all sorts of things or there's Legos and, and that is doing what uh, Andy Crouch talks about of like kids need to create, not just consume. And I definitely buy into that, even if it means sometimes I gotta push everything away to even land a plate for dinner. And if kids know what it means to form, what they're doing there is they're forming, they're fashioning, they're making something. And somehow embedded into what they make is like a part of them. They're showing this is, this is a reflection of what's going on in their head, what's going on with their hands. And so what must it mean when it says God forms us? Part of him is reflected in us. And if it isn't enough to say God forms things with intentionality, with purpose, with design, if we get some picture of his hands, like kind of an analogy of his hands going to work, forming, you also get this picture of him breathing life. It's, it's a mental picture of, we would say like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, only we weren't, it's not resuscitation in that there was never life and God is actually breathing the first life into humans. What a picture this is. Could there be anything more personal, more intentional than God wanting us to hear He is breathing life into us. We become a living creature, a living soul. That's the way Scripture reads. We're given God's life, and for all of our days, part of the function of what it means to be human is we're going to breathe in and breathe out when we sing in Christ alone. There's one particular phrase that says, from life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands our destiny. Life's first cry to final breath. I don't know, you might have had the experience that I've had on a couple occasions, not many, but a couple, where I've literally been in the room with someone when they take their last breath. One was my dad. And there is something about that moment, something that is so final, the finality of that moment is hard to express. I don't know that I I have words to describe it. But there's also something so holy and sacred about that moment If I'm wondering, okay, why is that when someone stops breathing? It's just recognizing God gave them breath. And when that breath is gone, their life on this earth is done. There's something about that. It's a lot to think through, I understand. One thing that's been on my mind is I think you could be tempted to read this as something like, okay, certainly it's way back in the beginning, and it's telling our origins, and you could be tempted to leave it there. But one of my f- favorite writers says this. Speaking of Genesis 2, he says, this chapter is not just about how things got started, but how things are going right now. I think that's extremely helpful for us to remember. This isn't just about how things got started, but it has a lot to say about what's going on right now. And I wonder if you feel that. 
I wonder if you feel the implications for what it means that God formed us and breathed life into us, what that means about right now. Maybe you've even wondered, I don't even know, maybe you've thought, I don't even know if there is a God. And if there is, 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 does he even care less about what I'm going through? And this is meant to communicate right here at the beginning where you can place your faith. The world is going to get, we understand, the world's going to get way off track and, and just, it's going to go chaotic. Genesis 3 tells us that, Genesis 4 tells us that, Genesis 6, Genesis 11. I mean, it just goes on and on from this point. But I don't want us to miss the beauty of what's going on and, and the original intention and the original design so that we can at least appreciate how far we've fallen and how much we need a Savior. Look at what God has done. Look at how much God cares. Look at how much God has personally invested in this. Of course, pain will be inflicted. Of course, life will be brutal. And maybe it's hard to square all this. Maybe there's so much going on in your life. Maybe it is physically. Maybe you have heart problems or an aneurysm or a group of cells that aren't behaving the way they're supposed to. Maybe it's not so much related to that, but it, it feels like on the social side, on the personal side, your personality seems to cause more problems than it helps right now. People are misunderstand you. People don't see you. Or maybe it's on the areas of life where you, you hear this of God forming and designing you and breathing life into you, and yet you realize all the dumb things you do just to get noticed, all the pride where you can't even admit you're wrong or say you're sorry. Maybe it's that weird feeling when you just kind of don't, you're new and you don't know what to do. Maybe it's that thing you thought this week of like, is this all there is? Like, seriously, is this all there is to it? Maybe you've exceeded expectations and nobody even bothered to notice. Maybe you've missed expectations and you feel extremely disappointed in yourself and extremely, you know, you've disappointed others. I don't know all of what's going on. I don't know if you're feeling like you walked in those doors going, Curtis, I don't know that I can keep it together and hold it all together with all the responsibilities that I've got. I don't know that I can do this for another day or week or month. I don't, it's beginning to unravel. And I know we're in Genesis 2 where it's telling you all about the beginning, but I want to pull all of that into right now and say, for whatever chaos is going on in your world that maybe you caused or maybe was caused to you, there is a clarity of this chapter of God forming and designing humans, breathing life into them. I'm not here, I'm not here to point the finger, and I'm also not here to excuse a bunch of things that shouldn't be excused. But I want you to listen, and I want you to see how, like, some big picture things could be settled in your mind. I don't know how you handle the randomness, because this world seems very, very random at times, and I don't know how you handle I don't know, like, maybe all of the skepticism pushes you to, like, I, I don't know that I see a bigger picture here, and I just want you even for a moment to consider that the Bible actually does offer a bigger picture. Again, I, I can appreciate skepticism. I can appreciate questions. But I just at least want you to lean in here and consider for a moment, even with the skepticism, consider for a moment what might, it, what might be true. If God, let me ask you this, if God wanted to communicate your value and he wanted to do it in such a way where it wouldn't be some silly hashtag that's going to be gone tomorrow, but it would have enduring value so that you would know for eternity you matter to him. I honestly can't think of one better way he could do that than to say, I formed you and I breathed life into you. And that anchors some things for us. 
internally. I mean, I, I, that can speak to my heart of God's assessment of his creation. By the way, that also could speak in our hearts to the way we ought to treat one another. If God formed them and breathed life into another person, do I have a right to like, totally blow them off? Treat them as if they're somehow like, not where I am? The rest of this chapter begins to roll out. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. I mean, this is the world we live in. It is going to be a world where, Lord willing, going to get to this next week, a, w- a world of companionship. It's not good for a man to be alone and, and even marriage. That's going to be part of the world we live in as humans. It's also going to be a world of personal responsibility. So even Deborah had a moment ago of there's a tree and God says, here's a command and here's a restriction. And we'll get into that certainly as Genesis unfolds. But I want you to see one more piece of this idea of exactly where God put humans. Notice verse 8, all right? The Lord God, it says, planted a garden in Eden in the east. And I want you to notice verse 8, all right? We'll come back to this. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, then it divided and became four rivers in the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellion and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Verse 15 kind of reemphasizes verse 8. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Seems painfully obvious, but I do want you to notice that God puts humans in places. God puts humans in places. So it's telling us a story that God planted a garden in, in Eden in the east. Eden just means delight or bliss. A garden is protected. There are boundaries. There are borders. It's enclosed. And you read about this garden, and let me tell you, I've been, I'm the geography, the map nerd in me just wants to go, where is the garden? Where is it? Where, where can we locate it? And, and so I probably spent more time than I needed to trying to pinpoint the exact location. There's all sorts of theories. You can spend uh, a number of hours like trying to look exactly with some of these data points and reference points, exactly where might the Garden of Eden been? And I think you can get some general ideas. And yet for me, I think it was probably an adventure in missing the point trying to get exactly like accurate on exactly where was this garden because I think it's, I think it's telling us, I think it's causing us not just to pull out the maps and do geography on this, even though there are tons of references to places and rivers. But notice what it says about the trees. It says, I'm giving you every tree. There's going to be a variety. It's every tree. And they're going to be good to look at. It's going to be a beauty about them, and it's going to be good for food. They're going to be productive. And there's two trees with oversized importance. There's the tree of life, which, and you could walk through the rest of Scripture looking at that phrase, even tree of life, and 
There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which gives us some idea of ethical awareness. It's going to be a part of this garden. So you notice the trees, and then you also notice you notice water flowing from a place that God designed. And again, the water of life or the river of life. I mean, how many, how many other places could we go in Scripture? Psalm 46 talks about the river that comes from God and like brings life to the whole earth. And Revelation 22 talks about the river of life that brings healing and restores. So there's all sorts of these things. And in these rivers, it says they have precious metals and as you do research on that, you realize like these words aren't just random words about like precious metals and giving us a, a colorful picture and with rivers and trees and all this. This is actually, all these words are picked up again when it starts talking about the tabernacle, the tent of God, of meeting God, the, t- the temple, the place where God was met, even the new heavens and new earth. Revelation picks up a lot of these words. It's, it's telling us that Garden of Eden was some sort of sanctuary heading us to like the true sanctuary where we will rest for eternity. There's so many things we could go, but it is telling us, yeah, what God makes is sacred space. There's something about this garden, something about it originally, like it's meant to appreciate all of what's going on. It's a helpful corrective because frankly, I see the world as sometimes not this beautiful place, but this place that can be just a real pain. It almost seems like it's more like a dystopian novel that, you know, it's just random and frustrating and it's all unraveled and it's just, it's awful and instead, and this does give us a window into, look at, look at what God has designed and if I read it all the way through Revelation, look at what God is going to do in restoring all things, making all things new. And it says that God placed the man in this garden So I I do want to focus our attention just for a couple moments here on that, Genesis 2.15. Notice it says the Lord God took the man and put him as if to say this is where you belong. I'm going to put you in a place. You're going to be floating in outer space. I'm going to put you in a place, and this is where you belong, and I'm going to take care of you. It's a place where you can enjoy but, but as if to say, like, and what are you going to do with all of your time and all of your energy and all of what it means to be human? He tells, he tells the, the man, he takes him and he puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work it and to keep it. The word work, if you just, like, do a search on that word for all the times it's used in the Old Testament. You actually find this word is regularly used to describe what people do when it comes to their relationship with the one true God or even false gods. They, they work. They serve. They, they do something out of duty. They, they give effort. So there's religious connotations. And, and I think that's helpful for us to appreciate. So it's saying God's putting humans in the garden to work. It's not even part of the curse after sin. This is initial, like take what I've made and now you develop and you create and you cultivate and you bring life and you bring order and you bring good things and you bring beautiful things. You take what I've given you and you work and you develop and you cultivate. I wonder if we had that mindset of like, you know what God has created humans to do? To cultivate and to develop, to work. 
And a part of that is just like the original connotations there. We're, we're meant to serve. We're serving God when we do that. I wonder if you saw your occupation or your field of study, your time in a classroom or a lab, your, your time in a cubicle, your time with a neighbor, your time dealing with individuals. What if your mindset shifted from why am I here to what if I take what God has given me and I work and develop and cultivate and create so that this place looks better than when I came? There's order, there's beauty, there's good things. What if that became a mindset? What would that mean for where you work? And again, I know that's going to hit reality with probably a mess. But what if this gave us some marching orders? All the relationships God has given us all the brothers and sisters in Christ, what if we realize part of our mission is to go into a place and work and give energy, relational energy, spiritual energy, emotional energy, physical energy, mental energy, to work. God's pleased in this. The work is what you are meant to do. So we work and notice also the word keep. So the idea is the same in the Psalms where we're, we're told the Lord is our keeper. What does it mean? He's the one that guards and protects and preserves us. So what if we had this mindset? Yes, we go into work. So wherever God has put us, whether you get a paycheck, whether you get, you're getting credits or grades or whatever, God has put you in an environment to your presence in it could mean something for the good of the overall environment. What if that was your mindset in your dorm, in your classroom, at your house, with your friends? What if you also begin to protect, to keep, to protect the good things, pushing back things that are dangerous? A shepherd would keep the sheep, would guard, protect, keeping something from danger, protect, like pushing the things that don't belong, like pushing those out. Isn't that what's good for a relationship, like good for a family? Push the things away that don't belong there and bring in the things and cultivate the things that are meant to be there. What if we had that? mindset in our relationships? What if we had that mindset in our work? I'm going to, I'm going to cultivate something and I'm going to, I'm going to at least do my part to push things out that don't belong here. I'm going to work and keep and God would be pleased. This is like taking us right back to the beginning. One thing that I found interesting is thinking about beginnings and thinking about like, okay, why are we here? And some of the bigger questions for several seasons, I watched a show on PBS. It was called Finding Your Roots. So here's the premise of the show. It's hosted by Henry Louis Gates. And the premise of the show was it would take a celebrity, always a celebrity. It's always got to be a celebrity, or we probably wouldn't watch. But it would take a celebrity. And then there would be people that would do research into this person's ancestors. So we begin to track down stories and history, maybe things that the family had lost that someone didn't remember. We begin digging into archives and would tell this celebrity, would tell this person, here are some of your roots and would trace it back to, you know, great-great-grandmother and this happened. And the whole premise, I mean, that is based on this, that as you understand this story better, it will, it will help you appreciate the person you are in some ways, not every way, certainly not every way, but this has made you who you are. This is part of the story that got you to this point. 
And you find it like the individual, like often they get very emotional as they hear the backstory of their family or the hard times or good times that someone's gone through. But what it does is even in, in their present life, it gives them perspective. It helps them put some things together, make some connections, sometimes even be courageous to do something, courage to like help move their life forward in a certain way because they're identifying with this past story. I would say to an infinitely greater degree. I think one of the things we're supposed to do when we read Genesis 1 and 2, I'm not looking for five generations back of Hills or my mom's side of the family. But I am reading something about the beginning that has a lot to do with where I am now. Genesis can do something in our heart. Especially if you think like, if, let me just speak to those that aren't like on top of the world right now. Everything's not coming together seamlessly. You feel disoriented, life has knocked you off balance for whatever reason. There's something about coming back to this story. Even when there's not a lot of hope on the immediate horizon, it's telling you, all right? It's telling you, here's what is true. God has formed you. And God has breathed life into you. And God has put you in the place he has. And we're reminded here, God knows how to finish what he starts. Something about that can stabilize when a lot is not stable. And I want to pray for that to be the reality in your life. Let me, let me do that. Father, thank you for the reminder not only are you the creator who is sovereign, but you're also the covenant-keeping God. You are the Lord, and you are the one who, according to Genesis 2, formed us, breathed life into us, and gave us a purpose, put us in a place to work and to keep. So I pray for lots of my friends in this room, and I pray for people that I've never met in this room, that somehow our ultimate origin story, the generations of the heavens and the earth, that will give us some stability and give us some hope and some vision and purpose, cement these realities. I pray even all of this would point us to a greater trust in Christ who will make all things new one day. So we ask all this in his name. Amen.